Father, what a joy it is to know you. We thank you that you're not only a God who's with us as we've sung and proclaimed and prayed into, but you're a God who speaks. You're a God who makes clear the path for us. We thank you that you've given us your word and that through your spirit, you, your word, it comes alive and it's sharper than any two-edged sword and it challenges and it convicts and it goes deep into our hearts causing a harvest to be brought forth for your glory. So we just pray this morning as we come to this moment of gathering around your scriptures, we ask that you would speak to each and every one of us and that you'd give us open hearts and listening ears to hear and to receive what the Spirit is saying to us as your church and us as your people. Thank you that you love us so much that you desire is to continue to move us and to mold us and to make us more like you. And we pray whatever way you desire, that would be the reality this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're up to Acts chapter 7. That's the passage of Scripture that is before us, but it's probably important for us to just get a little bit of background, and we're talking about an account Catherine um, mentioned last week, that there are some challenging stories in the book of Acts, as Luke pens this particular narrative account as the Holy Spirit inspires and directs and leads him, and there, there are moments of great celebration, exhilaration, as all sorts of incredible encounters and works of the, the Spirit unfold, and then there's moments that are very challenging for us as we read and ponder perhaps their significance, not just in the life of the early church, but for us as well and in the unfolding purposes and plans of God. And there's no doubt for me that chapter 7, the very first martyr in the Christian church, this is a challenging account and it's one that we would be tempted perhaps to, to gloss over, to move quickly past. And yet, Luke has gone to some efforts to give us a detailed account. In fact, this is chapter 7, the longest chapter in the Bible. It's the longest sermon that's preached in the book of Acts. So you can see kind of this underlining of this account as something that is significant and something that we should take note of. But before we launch into chapter 7 itself, and we are going to take a a brief sort of overview perspective of chapter 7 and pull out a few bits and pieces. I want us to just rewind a little bit, and if you've got your Bibles, turn to chapter 5, verse 41, because I think there's something that's key here as we launch into the account of Stephen for us to bear in mind. Now, if you've joined us in the season, you'll see that there has been this work of the Holy Spirit, there's been sermons proclaimed, and as a result of the gospel being preached, there has been some opposition on more than one occasion. First of all, Peter and John were arrested, and here it says all of the apostles, doesn't specify who, it just says all of them have been arrested, have been questioned, have been beaten, have been charged not to speak again in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then in verse 41, it says, then they being the apostles who'd been arrested, it says they left the presence of the council and just for a moment capture the reality of this statement that Luke made. Because every time I read it, it just, there's something in it. 
It says, they left the presence of the council doing what? Remember, they've been arrested, they've been beaten, they've been berated, they've been ridiculed. You name it, it's happened. They left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, of course, being the name of Jesus. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. In verse 42, and every day in the temple from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the promised Messiah. You see, here are some words that we would not find normally associated together. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer. Rejoicing and suffering put together in this inextricably joined nature. And as I read that, I think, well, what sort of a Jesus was it that these disciples had so encountered? What sort of a a passionate love was burning in their hearts? What sort of a, a gospel message was proclaimed from their pulpits that as they find themselves in this circumstance and situation, their only response as they leave is to rejoice? I mean, some of us might say, well, we could endure suffering. We sort of have this concept that, well, suffering's kind of part of a walk with Christ. How many of us honestly could say we would walk out of a similar circumstance saying, well, the most natural response, response is us, for us to rejoice, to rejoice that we were counted or found worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of the Lord Jesus. I mean, to be honest, I look at that and I think, well, Lord, where is that in my life? Where is it? Lord, challenge me. I want to know this Jesus. I want to have this passion in my heart that the only response in relation to a season and a circumstance that these apostles had been through would simply to be rejoice. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you saw fit to choose me to suffer dishonor for your name. Wow. So let's move on. So with that as sort of the the general backdrop, we get this account, and Catherine preached from uh, chapter 6 last week, and we talked about these men that were chosen, and right at the front of the list was this gentleman by the name of Stephen. So we see in chapter 6, verse 5, he's first mentioned, we read that of all of the members of this church, remembering that we've gone from just a handful, 120-odd, to a few thousand, to most commentators, church historians would say this, at least tens of thousands would be a conservative estimate. So from the thousands upon thousands, these men are selected. They're the first appointees, if you like, in the new church. And what was it that they were appointed to do? What was the office of great significance and prominence that they were placed to serve in, it was to love and to serve the least, the widows. Doesn't that say something about the early church? And then we continue on. So we've been introduced to Stephen. He's one of these men. They're prayed, uh, prayed on, prayed for by the apostles. Apostles have laid their hands on them. They're commissioned. And in verse 8, it says, And Stephen, full of grace 
and power was doing great signs and wonders among the people. So not only was he chosen and recognized, if you like, by his peers, by the growing church, there was an anointing of the Lord upon this man. Stephen was an incredible character. Incredible. So full of grace and power, he's doing great wonders and signs among the people. Verse 8, then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Cyrenians, the Alexandrians, those from Sicilia, Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So he's been anointed by God. Where do we see him? He's debating in the synagogue with the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those who were in positions of authority at the time, particularly the synagogue of the freedman. And yet it said that they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And this is not, the context here is not that they just had a one-off debate. There's the, the word for disputed there, it literally means to, to engage in a, an elongated discussion. There's ongoing discussion. He's, he's a man who has this boldness to proclaim the gospel. And that's where we see him. He's preaching, he's proclaiming, he's debating. And no one could withstand the wisdom with which he was speaking. Because, of course, the Holy Spirit was all over him. So what did they do? Verse 11, it says, Then they secretly instigated men who said, We've heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes that came upon him, seized him and brought him before the council. They set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against his holy place and the Lord. For we've heard him say this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the place, will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, grab this description here, verse 15, the end of chapter 6. It says, gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. That was an amen. I think they're coming from Siri. Thank you, Siri. Kind of reminds you of this picture, doesn't it, of Moses as he goes up the mountain, as he counters the, God, it counters the Lord, and he comes down, and his face is, is glowing. His face is like an angel. Verse 7, so the high priest said to him, are these things so? Now, it would have been easy for Stephen at this point just to say, well, yes, no, deny it. But I love Stephen because it's like he, he never ceases to grab an opportunity to proclaim the greatness of God through the works of Christ. The high priest says, are these things so? And Stephen says, well, brothers and fathers, hear me. And what's going to unfold here is one of the most incredible history lessons that Stephen, this unknown, perhaps we could presume, uneducated man, sits there and teaches the council and the the authorities in this particular synagogue. And in interest of time, we're going to skip along. We may have time as the series unfolds to go back and look at what is an incredible encounter, both of the sovereignty of God. That's His first major point is that God has been at work since the beginning. You think this is your your forefathers, you know, your heritage. This is not your plan. This is God's plan. This was always His sovereign plan. And yet at the same time, it was always the response of the people that God called to resist Him. 
and to reject. And there's a subtlety there as well, which we don't have time to develop, talking about how so often the unfolding of God's plan was rejected on at the first point, but received on the second. We look at Joseph, who was rejected by his brothers, but then re- received on the second, second time, second coming, if you like. Look at Moses, who was rejected by the people as their leader, and yet he was received on the second time. And, of course, by extrapolation, his point is that Christ, who was rejected by them, would be received as he returned a second time, which is a sermon for another day. So let's jump right the way through to the end of chapter 7 to pick up what we're going to focus on this morning. Here is his conclusion as he talked about the sovereignty of God, as he talked about the resistance of the people. Verse 51 says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You can see he's got the pastoral tendency of Peter as he brings his conclusion to this sermon. You always resist the Holy Spirit just as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law and did not keep it. Uncircumcised lawbreakers, he's called them. And for anyone who knows anything about a good Jewish leader, you can understand why they're so incredibly offended by what he has to say. Now, verse 54, so when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth. They're so full of rage against this man, Stephen, they cannot deny his wisdom. He's now accused them of being lawbreakers and uncircumcised. Verse 55, but he still full of the Holy Spirit. Now, if we just pause there for a moment, how is this story going to end? It's this incredible account, this man who's going around, he's preaching, he's proclaiming, he's performing signs and wonders. Here's what I'd love to to have seen at the end of this story. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, God is with him, right? He just stood up and walked through the crowds as Jesus did, and off he goes on his merry way. Or full of the Holy Spirit, he prays, and the angel of God is an earthquake, and out he walks, untouched through the burning flames of fire. I mean, that's, that's what I'd love to read, yeah? But there's something a little bit more confronting that happens here. But full of the Holy Spirit, it says he gazes into heaven, seeing the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cry out with a loud voice, Stop their ears. They rushed at him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, who of course becomes Paul and soon will be very prominent in this account of the early church. And as they were stoning Stephen, even here, just grab a hold of this this character of the incredible guy. He calls out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Here I am, Jesus. I'm coming home. And falling to his knees, he cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He just mentioned many, many sins of God's people as they'd rejected his purpose and plan, but he cries out even in his dying breath, God, I'm coming home, and don't hold this sin, at least this sin. Don't hold this one against them. They've got enough to deal with. But such was his mercy, such was his character. And when he said this, he fell asleep 
We read the beginning of 8. Saul, this man we've just been introduced, is the spearhead of a great persecution. One more verse, chapter 8, verse 4. It says that the believers are scattered, and those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. Preaching the Word. And there we have the story of Stephen in a, a very helicopter brief view. What is there that we can learn from this account? Why is it that Luke, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, felt this need, this unction, to give us this detailed account of one man's life? And to be honest, for me as I read it, it's a little bittersweet. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just that sort of tang of sadness. I can't help read this account. And think, as I've already alluded to, that in the midst of miracles and salvations, in the midst of incredible things that God was doing, is raising the dead, sick, are healed, was it too much for God to have come and just rescued this young man just at the beginning of his ministry? I mean, has anyone else ever thought along those particular lines if you've read this account? And yet that is not what happens. So why the Stevens? Why is it here? And what is there that we can learn? And that's what I want us to explore just for a few moments this morning. Now, I would make this opening remark. You see, there is a reality, and it's an uncomfortable reality, but it's a reality that we need to remember and keep before us. That from the first century, from this account that we have read, right the way through to the 21st century, that there is this reality of God not only using, but, or not, not, not only allowing, but using this picture of suffering and persecution to accomplish this incredible work and commission of the gospel. There's a, a phrase that's often used, and it simply says this, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And we see that here, not only in the life of Stephen, this young man who lays down his life, and we read in the very next verse, and the church was scattered, but they went proclaiming the Word of God. And in fact, this would become the catalyst to the greatest expansion of the church that we will read arguably anywhere in the book of Acts. Where did it come from? It came from the blood, in this instance, of a martyr. But let's just take this down before we come back up and look at, well, why is that the case? And how does it work? It's worth us remembering that not only is this path of suffering one that God uses or that He permits, it's one that He initiates. See, for the Christian gospel, suffering is not on the peripheral. It's not kind of a side issue. Let's just think about it for a moment. It is front and center, and we're going to remember that very intentionally as we gather together on Good Friday. See, make no mistake, there is a plan of redemption and rescue and reconciliation and hope. God has come, and He's putting an end to death. He's going to restore and establish everything that is wrong and make it right. He is going to rule and reign as the king of his kingdom, there will be no end. That's where we're headed, and we never want to forget that reality of his unshakable kingdom. But what is the method that he's chosen to accomplish that end? It's not just that we would 
suffer and struggle, but it's that Him, the eternal God, would come and be persecuted and be put to death and suffer, not only for us, but in our place. See, that is the path, that is the center of the gospel. Not a people who suffer, but a God who suffers. And in result to this reality of a God who suffers, there is this tension. It's an uncomfortable tension that from the very beginning, right the way through to the moment when Christ returns, that part of that journey is us as well involved in, if you like, not so much our suffering, but His suffering. Paul says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.12, he says, all who desire to live godly lives will suffer persecution. He doesn't say might suffer persecution. He says they will. There's, there's a guarantee if you truly want to live a biblical life, then there is one certainty, a number of certainties, but there's one that we're happy often to gloss over, but it is a reality that there will be persecution. Now, praise God that we live in a, a society and in a country where in the scheme of persecutions at the moment, the persecution is far milder than you'll find in other countries, even in our day and time and in the, sc the scope of persecution throughout history. And yet Jesus says this in Matthew 5.10. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So I want to draw this conclusion, and this is why I think this is not only something that's important for us to remember, but it's incredibly encouraging. There's, there's something so profoundly encouraging if we can grab a hold of this truth. See, although there is sorrow, the sorrow as I read this account of Stephen, the sorrow as I think of this reality of suffering persecution, ultimately this is not a story of defeat and sorrow. This is a story of victory and triumph. In fact, Stephen Stephanos is his name, in the original language. It means victor's crown. And just think about this for a moment. How is it that we want to live our lives? If you kind of think of, well, we talked about Paul. What, what is it that we're, we're going to boast upon as we come to our end of our lives, as we step from this life into eternity? See, wouldn't we all say honestly, or certainly I think we will, the other side of the grave, here's what we want. We want to live a life full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. We want to live boldly, proclaiming and preaching the gospel. And then we want to die in the confidence that when we take our last breath, our next breath will be taken in His presence. As Stephen is, Jesus, I'm coming home. But isn't that the way that we want to live? I mean, that is victory there. What, what is victory in our lives? Is it wealth? Is it prosperity? Is it success? Is it having everything this world could offer? And then when you come to the grave, you have nothing left at all. And you see, in the same way, although there is grief as we think of 
perhaps the persecution even in our own day and age. We could talk about ISIS, we could talk about Mozambique, Steve Lazar shared some stories there. We could talk about North Korea and this incredible persecution that continues still 2,000 years later as Christ proclaimed it would. Followers of me will suffer persecution. There is this sense of sorrow, of course, and we grieve with them and we pray for them. But at the same time, there's a reality that it's not just the persecuted church, as so often we call it. There is this encouragement of us remembering that it is a victorious church. For in the same way in the midst of Stephen's life, history proclaims that it is the blood of the martyrs that is the seed of the church. That it's in the midst of those seasons that the gospel message has been proclaimed with the most pertinence, with the most power, with the most impact and effect. That's when the gospel message shines through in an undeniable, unshakable reality. With great power as people like Stephen have said, willingly I lay down my life for the sake of the gospel. And out of that sacrifice comes incredible revival and effectiveness of the gospel message. So it's not a story ultimately of defeat and sorrow, but of victory and of celebration. So let me very quickly just give us three simple encouragements as we think of this account. In the book of Acts that we've read as we think about this notion in a more general sense of persecution of believers and of those who would follow Jesus. And I think all three of these we would do well to keep before us. This, this is what persecution reminds and encourages me of. And I pray that it will for each of us. Number one. That there is, and we've already touched on a lot of these, but I just want to make them clear, that there is an unshakable perspective. There is an unshakable perspective that we can live with as believers in Christ. There is this reality, we've seen this not just in the book of Acts, but for 2,000 years that God is faithful to His Word, that the gospel has not, that cannot be stopped, that the enemy is defeated, that the victory is secure, that there is nothing that is going to stop the purposes and plans of God. For 2,000 years, there's been attempt after attempt from the Roman Empire through to, you name it, every empire to stamp out believers in our own day to North Korea. You know, the greatest revival in, in terms of the reports that are coming out in our day and age is in Iran, in one of the, the countries around the world that is most anti-Christian. And yet, even in the midst of that environment, there is the gospel message spreading like wildfire. You see, there is this unshakable perspective that God will accomplish what He desires to accomplish. That He is faithful to His Word. And yet, there's another aside to that reality that I think is also worth us, particularly in the West, remembering. And I don't know if this will help. Sometimes my illustrations, I think, well, if it helps, take it. If it doesn't, let it go. But I was on um, YouTube the other week, probably a few weeks ago now, just searching through. And, you know, you get all sorts of random things. 
uh, that, that pop up, some good and some bad that you quickly move away from. This one, I'm not sure still which, which camp it was in, but it was Mike Tyson, the boxer, a 20-minute uh, video summary of all of his boxing victories. And I'm not a big boxer, but I thought, well, that's interesting. I'm going to watch through Mike. Is there any boxing fans here? Yeah, it's very quiet. One over here. <laughs> Preach to you, Dave. Thank you. <clears throat> so I thought, well, this will be interesting. I'll, I'll have, I'll have a, uh, you know, a look through some of his title bout matches. I mean, some of them were over in less than a minute, at 20 seconds. And Mike Tyson, he wasn't a guy who was known as the the biggest guy or the strongest guy, but he was marked by his aggression. I mean, he was tenacious. And these fights, I mean, I don't know what on earth would possess you to get in the ring with Mike Tyson. But the reality is, you don't want to hop in a ring with Mike Tyson unless you are ready, like you are prepared. You've, you've trained and you really know what is facing and what's coming against you. And I think sometimes the problem with, particularly in the West, the gospel message has been a little bit like, well, you know, it's, it's, it's not really like a, a, a bout in the ring with Mike Tyson. It's really the Christian walk's more like a walk in the path. You know, it's just, it's just sipping teacups and victory lap celebrations and nice gentle conversations. But the truth is, I mean, Jesus... When he's calling Peter, right, he restores him and he says, Peter, you know, feed my sheep. But here's the reality, you're going to die. You're going to be crucified. And church history says he was not only crucified, but he said, crucify me upside down. I, I refuse to be crucified in the same manner as my Lord. And that all the other um, apostles that Jesus called, they all literally laid down their lives for the sake of the gospel, other than John, who church history says he was boiled alive and then exiled to Patmos. The Lord still had work to, to do with him, in terms of scripture writing. But there, there is this reality that we forget sometimes that you know, the Christian walk it's, it's victorious, it is. Like there's this unshakable perspective that God's at work, but in, in the midst, it's far more like a, a bout in the ring with Mike Tyson than it is a visit to the local tea parlor to drink some tea. Like there's a sense in which we need to be aware of that reality. The football season started, you know, and you, you don't go to the football match, the players don't step out onto the field, ready for a black tie gala, you know, suit and, and nice black shoes. You step out ready, having prepared, having known what was coming. And there is that sense for us as well, that we live differently when we realize there's this unshakable perspective. But Jesus is saying there is, in the meantime, a wrestle. All who live godly lives will suffer persecution. Unshakable perspective. Number two, there is this unquenchable passion. See, if we have that perspective, what on earth would possess you to step in the ring with Mike Tyson? Well, obviously, it's the chance to win the world, what's the, the world title weight boxing heavyweight, whatever it is, the boxing title. You're in there with this, this passion because you've got one mission in mind, which is to defeat the enemy, to overcome. 
That's the only thing that makes all of the, the pain and everything else worthwhile. And I love that about Stephen as we read this account. He is a man with this unquenchable passion. I mean, he's, he's been anointed, he's been recognized by his peers. Tens of thousands of people said, man, pick this guy. The Holy Spirit's all on him. He's signs, wonders, miracles. What, what is it that he does? Is he, is he like, well, this is a wonderful moment to build a ministry here, to get a few followers on social media, to you know, sell a few materials just to, to, you know, to make some money for the kingdom. He's got this unquenchable passion, doesn't he, just to go and proclaim the gospel at the expense of his life. That's where we see him. He's anointed, hands laid on him. Very next breath we see him, he's just preaching this incredible message that would end up costing him his life. Living with this single desire. There was a particular letter that did the rounds. It's probably you know, eight or nine years ago now. And uh, I remember coming across this. I may have even used it before, but I just love this particular example. It's a letter that was written by a gentleman whose name was Adoniram Judson. Name ring any bells? He's a famous Baptist missionary from America, one of the very first that would head to the area known at the time as Burma as a missionary. And he met this uh, lovely lady called Anne that he wanted to marry, knowing that God had called him to be a missionary. And he said to this wife, you know, would you marry me? This is my call. We can do this together. And she said, well, first you need to write a letter to my father to ask his permission for us to get married. So this is in 1812. And this is the letter that he wrote to his wife-to-be's father, his father-in-law. Just grab this, I love it. He says, I now have to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of wanton distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, perhaps a violent death. Not your typical proposal letter. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of the perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God. Can you consent to all this in the hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise, which shall resound to her Savior from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. It's quite, quite a picture, isn't it? Quite an invitation. Well, he did consent and they got married and they headed off and she would end up laying down her life on the mission field. She died. But through their sacrifice and through the work that God accomplished through them, the gospel was brought to a previously unreached area of Asia. Living with that single, pure, passionate desire. It's an unshakable perspective. There's an unquenchable passion. And there is an unrivaled prize. See, what is it that drove Stephen's life? Well, it certainly wasn't wealth, was it? It wasn't prominence. He wasn't seeking some platform for himself. It wasn't success in the eyes of the world. His prize was simply Jesus. Laying down everything that he had. Lord, you're worthy of it all. Whether by my living 
Obama dying, you will be most honored. Here is my life as an offering. Paul says this to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, verse 6 to 8. He says, The time of my departure has come. I'm being poured out as a drink offering. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. We talked about Paul earlier, didn't we? This reality of I count everything as loss just for him. What is it that drove him? The Apostle Paul, through his own life of persecution, of being whipped and beaten, and he himself was stoned and left for dead, and God raised him in imprisonment. It was that reality that when I step from this life to the next, the only thing that counts is Him. Jesus, I'm coming home. Can we get the worship team back out? Let me just finish with a quick story and then we're going to pray. So I think there is that challenge, but hopefully... My prayer is that encouragement as we look at this area of persecution, of suffering, as we look at the example of Stephen, of the Apostle Paul, of the martyrs who've lived throughout human history. And yes, it's challenging, and yes, there is sorrow, but for me, the encouragement is that there is this unshakable perspective. That there is, as we see that, this unquenchable passion. And there's a reminder of this unrivaled, unperishable prize. A crown of righteousness, a crown that represents not only the greatness of who we are and what we've done, but the greatness of who He is, of what He's done for us. We close our eyes. And just before the Lord, as we bring this time to a close, just to ask us that question. What is it that we're living for? What is it that is the motivations of our lives? What, what's driving us? What are we seeking after? What glory is it that we're looking for? What is the the boast and the foundation that we're resting upon. Because I think particularly for us as Western believers, although we talk and we've talked even this year about that sense and that notion of it being a little more uncomfortable to be a Christian and a believer, which it is, than perhaps a generation ago or a generation even before that. But despite that sense, there's still a reality that we have so much, so many different things that we glory in, that we boast in, that we trust and that we hope in. But as I read the scriptures, as I read the accounts of Stephen and so many others, 
ultimately for each and every one of us here. There's only one thing that matters in the light of eternity. And it's that life lived full of faith, full of the knowledge of Christ, full of the power of His Spirit. A life lived boldly proclaiming the greatness of who He is. And then with tears of unspeakable joy as we take the step from this life into the next knowing that our last breath here will mean the first in the presence of his unrivaled glory so father i just asked this morning that you would you challenge us where we need to be challenged that you'd convict us where we need just the conviction, not condemnation, but that's not from you, but the conviction of things and ways and means that we build our lives upon so many other things other than what matters. Or that you turn us back from the passions and directions of our lives that are contrary and in contradiction to living with that single focus with that knowledge of who you are with that passion burning within us as all the apostles did and lived to consider it a great joy that we would be counted worthy to suffer for you knowing that you're the God who first suffered for us. To love you because you're the God who first loved us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Why don't we stand? We're going to finish with a song this morning. Respond to the Lord in that way. And as we conclude that song, there'll be an opportunity just for, for ministry this morning.